You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And over the last few weeks, we have been uh, entering into some tough social topics, trying to ask the question, how do we as followers of Jesus enter into these culturally difficult places uh, with the operating understanding that Jesus is Lord and all of our lives are going to be allegiant. Our greatest allegiance is to him. And so we've talked about some pretty hard things. And the series has been titled Third Way, um, but it, it really should be titled like Things You Don't Talk About at Thanksgiving Dinner. Because uh, it was like abortion and racism and sex and sexuality. And last week we hit money. Uh, and this week we're going to just keep it going if that's okay with you guys. Is that cool? Because uh, the thing you really don't talk about at family dinner um, is not just those things, but the thing you really don't talk about is family at family dinner. You ever notice that? Like, if you talk about family, that's when it really gets real. Like, it's, it's one thing to talk politics. It's another thing to talk about uh, why you don't like your cousin's boyfriend and why your brother still lives in the basement. Like, that, <laughs> that's too far. And so uh, I, I remember when my wife and I, uh, we had just started dating, and she came over for a uh, family gathering, and it was like this first big thing, and we we're we're kind of casually getting into conversation. Then my aunt walks in with her new boyfriend. My mom says something snarky. My grandma walks out of the room. My uncle George speaks up and all at once they were like, George, no one even likes you anyways. And it was like, and that was just like the beginning of the night. It went volcanic after that. Uh, and when, when everybody left, uh, I'm sitting in the living room with my girlfriend, Amy. And, uh, and I was like, so welcome to the family. And um, she was like, that was different. That's what she told me. Uh, which is what you tell someone before you break up with them, right? That's, that was different. Uh, so if you are new to church or haven't been around very long, there's going to come a point in the sermon where you're going to think to yourself, well, that was different. And uh, uh, good news is my wife and I have been married 10 years, so it worked out well. Uh, so give us 10 years and you'll like this, okay? Uh, <laughs> We don't really have that kind of time, but nonetheless, it's, it's just going to happen. Uh, because listen, honestly, God, uh, over the last 11 years, has been gracious to our church. And we, have, we, as your leaders, have constantly been asking, God, who do you want us to be? God, how do you want us to leverage our influence? God, how do you want us to go into the world uh, and equip our leaders to go into the world? And, and over the last couple of years, we, we've been clear on the vision of planting 21 churches by 2021. Uh, but the truth is, over the last few years, we've started to really feel the implications of that vision. And we've had to ask the questions, are we going to be uh, willing to take on the behaviors necessary to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish? And so uh, in order for us, for us to talk about the church, we're not going to talk about like the outside world's view of the church today. We're just going to talk about the family today. And so if, if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16? In order to talk about the family, you have to go back to where the family started. And you have to look at the founding vision uh, and where we got this whole thing from. Uh, so we're going to look at the words of Jesus where he starts to talk about what we are supposed to be and who we are. And he uses the, the word church for the first time, which in the Greek is ekklesia. So in Matthew chapter 16, uh, the context is Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom. He's been healing people. There have been crowds gathered. There have been crowds go away. There have been people that decide to follow him. There's been people that have rejected him. There's all kinds of dynamic things happening in the story. And we get this moment where he's alone with his disciples and he wants to have real talk with the family. And so he gets together with his disciples. And in Matthew 16, verse 13, here, here's what we get. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
who do people say the son of man is? He's like, you guys have been around. You've seen all the chaos. You, you know what's going on. What are they saying about me out there? Verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So maybe you're an Old Testament prophet. Like you obviously have wisdom. You obviously have power. We're not sure what to deal with, do with you. But that's what people are saying out there about you. Verse 15, he looks at the disciples. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? So he, he speaks this to his disciples, and one of them speaks up, Simon Peter, the leader of the disciples. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter speaks up. I think you're the Old Testament prophet who's coming to this world to save us all, that everything's about you. You're actually the son of God and the savior of the world. Thanks for asking, Jesus. That's who I think you are. See that, boys? Like he's like, And so he speaks out in that way. In verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So that confession you just made, you didn't come up with that. You weren't smart enough to conjure that on your own. My Father has revealed that truth to you. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia, my church. And the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. And I've always thought that was interesting because my upbringing in the church, it was as if the church had a gate and, and the gate of the church was to protect people in the church from stuff called uh, secular music, whatever that was, right? And you're like, don't get in through the gates, secular music, whatever you are. Um, dancing, uh, don't do that. Uh, curse words, don't do that. Like uh, fun, don't do that. Right? Not that those aren't, sorry, those aren't all the same. But essentially you were to protect yourself from the big bad world. And you were playing defense. But when you go to the founding vision of the church, Jesus says the, the church is not playing defense in the story. We're on offense. We are moving into the world and the gates of hell don't stand a chance. There's something happening here that the gates of hell cannot withstand. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that there was a confession made by Peter that is now the foundation of the church and then the person of Peter, the other apostles, the leaders that he sees in them, the ability to make this thing happen are the people by which he's going to build something out of. The foundation is who he is. God has revealed something to you. That's the foundation. And you guys are going to be used to build something on that foundation. So this term ecclesia is a profound, beautiful vision Jesus gives to what's going to happen in the life of his people that even the gates of hell do not stand a chance against stopping. This is going to happen and it's going to be profound. And so this is a little clunky and we've used this before, but I think it's helpful. So, so who is the church? According to this text, the church is a God revealed group of people. God revealed something to a group of people. And that group of people has been bought by Jesus. They're being built by Jesus. They're commissioned by Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish a mission that the gates of hell will not prevail against. That was a mouthful, but stay with me. They're a group of people that God has revealed something to. And Christ has paid for them. And he is building them. And he has commissioned them in the power of the Spirit to join in the mission of God. And the gates of hell do not stand a chance. And listen, the early Christians, the early ecclesia, the first 30 years of Christianity, these people understood the message and gave their lives for it. And they did their job and they brought forth powerful testimony and the gospel was expanded because they understood what Jesus was talking about. As I started researching the sermon, I was like, I know this is bizarre, but just thinking through the people in the book of Acts 
And I started like getting emotional. I was like, man, I cannot wait to meet like the, the disciples. And I was like, Luke and Paul and Timothy and Silas and Barnabas and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and Mary Magdalene and Martha and Susanna and Lydia and the Philippian jailer, whatever his name is, and Nicodemus, like all of them, we owe a great debt of gratitude to them. If you have the gospel, it's because these people gave their lives away for the gospel. We owe, we owe a debt of gratitude. And listen, they understood this and the gates of hell did not prevail against their generation. And this is what we are invited into as well. It's just our turn now. It's just our turn to walk in this. But the difficulty comes in this, this definition of the word ecclesia. Because ecclesia in the Greek translates to uh, the English word assembly or gathering. The gathering or the assembly is what ecclesia means. And so what happens oftentimes is people now equate what Jesus said in this passage to the gathering together of people. That, that there was a church gathering, one day an event is now the gathering which Jesus had in his mind when he said ecclesia. And they misunderstand that the spirit of the word ecclesia is not the gathering that happens once a week, but rather the gathered ones that Jesus has brought unto himself. The, the, the ecclesia is the gathered ones, not the ones that gather as an event, but the ones who gather around the event. The event of his life and death and burial and resurrection, that's what the ecclesia is. But it has put us in a unique place in culture today. That this one time of year, one time a week event is now the primary way that we think about church. But this text is so clear that this is not an event. If you have experienced the revelation of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, and you have claimed him to be the Lord of your life, then you are the church. The church is not where you go, it's who you are. And God has a vision for these people to go into the world and, and to, to saturate the world with his presence through this group of people. But what's happening today is, is something quite different. And so again, family talk, there's two predominant ways that, that, that the church is being played out today. And we want to talk through those and then offer us another way. So the first way that the church is currently being played out in our culture is what's called the heritage view. The heritage view of the church ha has this basic understanding that the church is a place where certain things happen. It's a place in town where preaching of the word happens, where taking the Lord's Supper happens, and where baptism happens, and for some people where church discipline happens. But it's a place in the world where I go and some professional Christian provides for me services that are rightly administrated. So the ordinance is being rightly administrated. And so you spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's happening properly and what's not proper. And the, the highest value is the right administration of the ordinances. And so again, family talk, uh, what this sounds like in Resonate Church, when the heritage view finds its way into our space, this is what it sounds like. People say this, uh, video preaching is a problem. That's not the right administration of the word of God. And I don't like that kind of preaching, so I therefore don't like the church. Village, which is our small group structure, uh, that needs to be a Bible study. And the fact that that's not a Bible study means that that's not the right way small groups should function. Uh, our staff raising support, the Resonate staff raises support, that is unbiblical and not the right way that the church should function. And so you find yourself in these situations, thinking through this this way, where people come to us and they say, I don't like the way you guys do membership in your church. 
I don't like the way you do deacons in your church. I don't like the way you do eldership in your church. Or could you tell me more about that? Because they want to cross-reference it and see if that's being rightly administrated. Or people say you might be too lax on communion or you might be too lax on baptism. But the view of the church is that's where certain things happen. And that's where certain things happen to me the way I want them to happen. And then the second view of the church is the contemporary view of the church. And this is probably the most dominant view in America today, where the church is a vendor of religious goods and services. So from this perspective, members in the church are seen as customers, and the leaders in the church have to provide products for the customers. So my favorite store in the city of Pullman is called the Palouse Candy Shop. You guys been there? Anybody? I would like to evangelize you all right now about the Palouse Candy Shop. It's at the end of Main Street. You walk in. <coughs> Sorry, I had Panda Express like right before the sermon, and it's going bad for me. Uh, <laughs> family, family talk, right? Family talk? Too much? Just letting you in on my struggles. <laughs> Where was I? Palouse Candy Shop. You go in there. You walk around, pick all the candy you want, put it in a bag, drop it on the counter. This amazingly sweet lady uh, charges you hardly anything for this candy. And you pay for it, and then you get to eat a bunch of candy. It's the best thing in the world. The church is basically, uh, like, like you have a candy shop, it's basically a church shop. And people have to come in and pick what they like, put it on the counter, and pay for it. You even hear the term, I'm church shopping. I'm shopping for a new church, which in some ways is like just what people say. On the other hand, it's like people are saying, I'm looking for a place that's going to do what I want. And I'm the consumer, and I need to... I need to be, you know, serviced for my money. And so in its darkest form, you hear stuff like this. Someone would say, uh, I'm not getting my tithes worth out of this church. I pay for stuff and that's not getting given to me. Or they say stuff like this, Resonate doesn't care for me, which we always say, Resonate doesn't exist. I'd like to know your village leader's name so I can help them care for you. (laughs) I can care for them to care for you, right? Because that's not a thing. Resonate's not a thing. Or you hear people say, you guys should do that. You know what? Resonate Church, you guys should do that. You guys. You guys out there should do that. Um, Or even personally, you come in, you go, man, I can't worship to this music. It's too loud. And those worship leaders, their jeans are too skinny. And like their hair makes me uncomfortable or whatever. (laughs) Too close. Too close to home for some of you. Or like their their shirts are unbuttoned to an uncomfortable uh, spot on their chest. And there's just vulnerable. It's just, I can't. Okay, I can't. I need more buttons and looser jeans. Less loud, or I'm out. I expect more from the kids' program. This kids' program is not good enough for me. This youth program is not good enough for me, and I, I want more. I pay for this stuff, and I want more. But listen, the major issue of both of these views of the church, the heritage view and the contemporary view, is that both of them see church as an institution that exists for the sake of its members. Institutions that exist for the sake of their members are called country clubs. They're called gems. They're called blockbuster video, which you don't even know about anymore. (laughs) Those things exist for the sake of their members. And yet that's what's put forth before us. So we come to you as your leaders and we say, listen, listen, listen. What if there's a third way? What what if the heritage view, there's some really good stuff in there, but what if that's not all all, all there is? And the contemporary view, there's some really good stuff in there, but what if that's not all there is? And so we come to you and we say, there's a third way. And so we propose to you the missionary people view of the church. The missionary people view of the church. And the third way is to see us as a people saved and sent by God to participate in his redemptive mission in the world. The nature of the church rooted in the very nature of God is missionary. Missionary. 
So this is the moment where you're like, whoa, that's, that's different. That's a little different. Yelling at your uncle like that, that's a little different. Uh, yeah. Stay with me. G- give me. Give me a logical step moment. What we have to do to believe this, point one, is to be a missionary people church, we have to see God differently. And I know that makes some of you nervous. See God differently. That's like where heresy starts. But stay with me. We have to see him differently, and here's how. If the best thing I can do to get to know someone is to look at their actions and their behaviors, and by looking at their actions and their behaviors, I can see what kind of person they are. And so you've got a person that says, I'm a really generous person, but their actions and their behaviors really never show generosity or show self-sacrificial moments. You would say to that person, you're not generous. You say you're generous, but you're not generous because of your actions. Someone says, I'm funny. And you're like, bro, you're not though. Your actions and your behaviors are the opposite. People laugh at you, but not like you think. And so that's different. Or I'm a social butterfly. No, you're not. Your actions and behaviors, you're weird and we need to help you. So there's, there's, the best way to know someone is to see their actions and see their behaviors. And that's the best way I can tell you who someone is. So listen, under that same lens, the behaviors of God are the best ways to understand God. His actions tell us his nature. They tell us who he is. But listen to me, we have seen massive groups of people, massive groups of people read the word of God while divorcing the word of God from the actions of God. They look at the Bible and they read the word and they don't think about how they got the Bible or why their heart was regenerated in the first place to even see the Bible as good. And we have a generation of people who take the word of God and divorce it from the actions of God and miss out the fact that he is doing something in that word. He has behaved in a way. The Old Testament story is a story of a God who created people who then ran from him and he pursued his created people time after time after time after time. They actively rebelled against him. His action and his behavior was towards them. The the Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel says the Old Testament is not a story of man in search of God. It's a story of God in search of man. He has an outward nature about him. His outward action shows you his heart. And then the New Testament continues the story in God's most profound action, his most profound behavior. If I get to know you by who you are, if I get to know who you are by what you do, then you look at God and you say, that God sent forth his son into the world his greatest asset he gave to the world to die for his greatest enemies. Let me tell you about God's actions. He's a father who's pursuing his children. He's a father actively pursuing his children. So you cannot look at the Bible and not see God's missionary posture, his missionary heart, his missionary thinking, his missionary behaviors. Yet we do it every day. We do it every day. And we miss out on the fact that this is showing us who he is. Uh, David Bosch, the South African theologian, wrote a great book called Reforming Mission. And he says this. He says, from the beginning of time, the stories of creation are stories of God the missionary. God sends his word into the chaos and order is created. And this is what God continues to do over and over. He goes towards his people and he brings light to the darkness. And the crescendo of this story is when God sends his own living word into the chaos, his own living light into the darkness, his own living son into a world of orphans. 
That's what he has done. That is his behavior. And then David Bosch goes on to talk about the Latin phrase missio Dei, which we've all translated to be the mission of God. And he says that's not the whole picture of the mission of God because that mission of God was never intended to simply tell you about what he does. David Bosch makes the claim that a better translation of missio Dei is not the mission of God, but rather the missioning God, the God of mission that this is not just what he does, this is who he is. This is his nature, that he is out working into the world towards the people that are running for him. It's a, it's a part of his identity. And so Bosch says that the mission assigned to the church has its originations in the mind of a missionary God. So to say it as plainly as possible, if a missionary God is who he is, then a missionary people is who we are. Or we're not doing what he's called us to do. We're not being who he's asked us to be. If the story of the Bible is the story of a God moving into the darkness, then the story of his people better be a story of his people moving into the darkness. If the story of the Bible is a God sending uh, and self-sacrificially living towards brokenness, then the story of his people better be a story of us self-sacrificially living towards brokenness. If the story of the Bible is moving into chaos to create order, his people better move into chaos to create order. If the story of the Bible is a God multiplying influence for the sake of his glory in all nations, then the story of his people better be a story of people multiplying his influence for the sake of all nations. Are you tracking? You, you, you hear this. This is, this, is, this is it. That we reflect his glory by acting like him. And he goes, is this, is this the only place where you're getting this from? I, I think the most evident place, and we've told you a snapshot of it over and over again. In John chapter 20, something profound happens. Jesus lives a sinless life, crucified in our place, goes to the grave, resurrects from the dead, and gives a message to his followers post-resurrection. And here's what he says in John 20, verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. Doors locked, Jesus comes in. No big deal. Just, he's, he showed up. Great, great, great. One of the disciples was like, didn't we lock the door? No, he's in. Jesus is in. Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his sides. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. F feel this for a moment. They're together, they're afraid, the door's locked. They don't know what's gonna happen. Resurrected Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God, shows up in the room, shows them his hands and his side. And the crucified Lord looks at them and says, peace to you. There's peace on you. And they're overjoyed by this. And then Jesus looks at them in verse 21. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathes on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The crucified Lord is now the resurrected Lord looking at his followers. And I have to believe he is smiling going, guys, it's just the beginning. <laughs> Look, they can't stop us. The gates of hell do not prevail against this. As the father has sent me, so I send you. And I do not send you alone. And he breathes on them the power of the Holy Spirit. So listen to me, Resonate Church, we are a missionary people. And this means something significant. So at this point, you can go, okay, Josh, uh, cute TED talk. What does that mean for me? Here, here's what it means. You ready? This means there's some change that has to happen. So if this is true, then to be a missionary people, mission must be our organizing principle. It must be our organizing principle. An organizing principle is a core assumption from which everything else by proximity can derive its value. 
Everything else can understand its place. It is the central reference point that allows other objects to be located. So just for a moment, think about uh, in, when 9-11 happened, uh, Homeland Security in America made counterterrorism their organizing principle. The reason we exist in Homeland Security is to counter terrorism. So if anybody in this place is doing something to counter terrorism, then you are doing the right thing because that is our organizing principle. The sun in the solar system, the sun is the organizing principle by which all things orbit. If you're planning out a new city, there's something called grid mapping. Grid mapping is the organizing principle by which new cities are created so the transportation and people flow works together. So listen to me, worship is not our organizing principle. Community, as glorious as that is, is not our organizing principle. It's not the reason we're here. Evangelism is not our primary organizing principle. Bible study, great, not our organizing principle. All of those things are great things, but they all organize around our agenda and our organizing mission and our organizing principle, which is mission. But again, growing up, for me, missions wasn't an organizing principle. Uh, it, it was a part of the church, and it wasn't the word mission. It had an S on it, and it was called missions. And so every church had a missions department, and you could go on a missions trip for a couple of weeks. And I went to Africa when I was 15, and Venezuela when I was 16. I've been to Canada, I've been to Mexico, I've been to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico could be called a questionable mission trip, but I'll leave that between me and the Lord, right? Uh, I've gone on trips, and I've done some things, but that, that was for missions trips. I'm talking about the mission of God. Because listen, if we're honest, most North American Christians think the Great Commission does not apply to them. They, they, they don't believe that the Great Commission applies to them. And because that is true, they think someone else is going to do it. And because that is true, it's not long before they create a Jesus in their mind that would never call them to a hard place. They would never call them out of their comfort, would never call them out of security, would never call them to go and leave and abandon and self-sacrifice and never call them to anything like that. And so why would they want to go to a church that called them to that? And that, that's, a, that's a premise where people find themselves all the time. So listen, Resonate Church, we as a church can no longer settle for a life of missionary programs. We have to strive for, for lives of missionary spirituality. We can no longer settle for missionary programs we have to strive for lives of missionary spirituality. A missionary program oftentimes is a 90 minute thing once a week, or it's a 10 week thing that you go through, or it's a trip you go on, all of which are great things. But oftentimes it's about a technique or memorize this method or use this tool or it's this compartment of your life. And oftentimes it's guilt driven, like I'm going to feel guilty if I don't do this, or my leader wants me to do it, so I better go on one trip. Or they're never going to leave me alone about this thing. And so that's what ends up driving this whole thing. I remember in the church I grew up in, they started a program called uh, Share Jesus Without Fear. And it was on Sunday nights and we would go around uh, our neighborhood and we would knock on people's doors and we would uh, go through a survey with them. And I, I grew up in a really small town and I went to a really small church. There was like 45 people in my graduating class. And so we're going to go out and survey the neighborhood, knocking on doors, talking to people. And it was like a 10 question survey. It was called Share Jesus Without Fear. It should have been called Surveying Your Neighborhood While Terrified is what it should have been called. Because you, you know, like I know everyone that lives in the neighborhood. And so we're walking down the street, we're like going to that house. And I'm like, oh, that's where Jimmy lives, my friend. Great, awesome. So you show up, you knock on the door and Jimmy answers. He's like, Josh, what's up, dude? I'm like, Jimmy? 
not here for that. I'd like to ask you a few questions. And so I go through the survey with Jimmy, trying to make sure that he, if there was a church in town that did this, this, and this, what's the scale of which you would go one to five? How would you go to that church? I don't know. Put me down for a four. Okay, cool. If this happened, and then the last question on the survey was, Jimmy, if you died right now, would you go to heaven or hell? He's like, bro. I'm like, Jimmy, Jimmy, bus is coming for you. Heaven or hell, bro. I need an answer. He says, he says four, four out of five. He's going to heaven. I say, Jimmy, how confident are you about that? And if there was someone who knew something that could make you more confident, would you want to know? And Jimmy's like, bro, you're being weird. And shuts the door. And, like, and then I see him the next day at school and it's super awkward. And he's like, dude, Josh came to my house with this survey. It's this whole thing. And listen, there's nothing. Listen, here's what's funny about that. That program was supposed to teach me how to share Jesus without fear. I just didn't understand the lifestyle necessary to do that program. There was nothing wrong with that. I, I needed to share the gospel with Jimmy and obviously wasn't doing that. And so this, this thing was trying to give me a tool and help me, but I misunderstood and I wasn't living into it because I didn't have a missionary spirituality. I didn't have a life saturated by, by saying, God, would you leverage me for your glory? It was all compartmentalized. It was all uh, 90 minutes here, two minutes there. Uh, memorize this, say this, survey this, make sure your leader catches all that you did. And I missed it. And listen, I submit to you, that's what a lot of us are being tempted by. But what God has asked of us is that our relationship with Jesus would be saturated by wanting to see his kingdom advanced and wanting to join him in his action in the world. And so here's what that means. It means when I pray, when you pray, there should be a component of your prayer life that is perpetually bent towards the lost world. So of course you're going to praise God. Of course you're going to repent. Of course you're going to ask him to heal people that are sick. Of course you're going to ask him to provide things you need. Of course you're going to pray those ways. But there's always a part of your prayer life, your daily prayer life, that is asking God to seek and save the lost in your life. And then this is more specifically, asking God to give you the courage and the boldness and the opportunity to join him in that work. Every part of your prayer life has to be focused towards that. There's a spirituality of, the, of mission that's involved. I heard a story of our church in Ellensburg. They wanted to see God save people. So they did a, a Bible study about uh, all the, the terminologies for salvation in the Bible. And they started praying those terminologies over people. God, I pray that you would remove the veil over the heart of this person. God, I pray you would replace their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. God, I pray you would regenerate their heart. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart. There's a lot of heart verses about salvation. And they would pray these things over people because the missional spirituality had entered into their prayer lives. Listen, when we worship, that should be oriented around mission. Every time we sing, we should be grateful for God that he has paid for us through his son so that we have reconciliation with him. And we worship him and we give him glory and we sing our hearts out. But there's this other part of us that longs for people to know him and worship him like we do. So we are simultaneously grateful and grieved when we worship. And that's a part of our worship. I don't know if you've ever been with, with a missionary, like an actual missionary who's come off the field and been a part of a worship service. Uh, but this last year at our Resonate conference, uh, our missionaries had come off the field and they, they joined us at ResCon. And our first uh, session at ResCon was like blow the doors off worship, like the best worship band uh, from every side. And it was like, it was like lit as the kids say, right? It was fire emoji times 10. Sorry, I did that dad joke. It, it, it was going for it, right? And afterwards I, I, I was standing by my friend. I asked him, I was like, man, how was that for you? And he's like, bro, you, you know where we are. Like, it's illegal to sing. It's illegal to worship. You, get, you can't share the gospel. He's like, so on one hand, I want to sing 
as loud as possible. I want to, I want to yell, sing. I want to lift my hands. I want to jump. I want to go all out. I want to give everything I can in worship because I don't always get to do that. And I want to be so over the top in worship. And he's like, and on the other hand, I want to go lay on the floor over there and cry for all the people who don't know God and don't know Christ and don't have the opportunity to worship him unless we mobilize all these singers. Because there's a generation of people that aren't going to hear his name. And I thought that's a missionary spirituality that, that I'm worshiping with that dichotomy and I'm seeing that. Listen, when you read the Bible, you open the Bible and you see the outward nature of God, the outward flowing of his glory, and you recognize his great love for fallen humanity every time you open the Bible. When you look at the Gospels, Jesus is literally a man on a mission. He's going, preaching the kingdom, saving people, healing people. He's going to go to the cross and nothing's going to stop him. And that's what you see in the word of God. I saw an interview by David Platt, who used to be the International Mission Board president. He said he, said he would try to, to open the word of God and, and show his, his other missionaries around the world that this was a missionary strategy book. And that every morning when you're reading the Bible and you're connecting with God, you're getting his strategy, you're getting his heart, you're getting his, his, his methodology inside of you when you read. And so every time you read the Bible with that missionary spirituality, even our holiness has to have this. Our holiness, what is, what is holiness? It's the Holy Spirit's job to, to transform us into the image of Christ, to get us to think about sin like God thinks about sin. He hates sin. And so that's, the, that's a progression of holiness. But why are you getting more holy? So that your life can be further used to glorify God and bring his kingdom to this world. And some of you need to be freed up from sin so that you can get in the game. And if you started to see yourself like, man, you mean to tell me that my ability to participate in the mission of God is being hindered by my sin? Absolutely hindered by your sin. Then now your holiness is fueled by wanting to take part in his mission. This is all over the scriptures. We need a missionary spirituality. And you go, okay, well, what, what does this mean for me? What is this practically? What are, what are you asking me to do? And here, here's what it means. It means that, that we have to see this personalized in an everyday kind of way. And the best way I can explain it to you is this. The missionary people believe that God is daily going before them and they are actively looking for ways to join him in his mission. The missionary people are not waking up in the morning saying, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do some stuff. God needs some help. I'm going to start some things. I'm going to pioneer some new stuff that God's not doing. No, 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 you're not. God has gone before you and he is doing 10,000 things in 10,000 people's lives that you don't know nothing about. And by his grace, he opens your eyes to see it in moments. But you miss, and I miss a lot of those moments because we do not operate with the missionary spirituality. And because we don't operate like that, we miss what he's doing in the world. But when your prayer life shifts and you start to pray for boldness and, and courage and you start to think about the loss, when your worship shifts, when your Bible reading shifts, when your holiness shifts, the next thing you know, you're at the park with your kids and there's a guy next to you and you're like, oh, there's a lot of people that live in the city. There's a lot of people that could have done a lot of things tonight. And yet here I stand with this brother and two kids playing on the monkey bars. Hey man, what's going on in your life? Nothing, man. My wife is at home. She's struggling. So I brought the kids out here struggling. And you are two questions away from seeing that God is actively moving in that guy's life. And he sovereignly puts you at the park with your children. I called my uncle the other day. He was like, oh, I was on the radio. 
and like stopped on some sermon and I just was like listening to a sermon and I was like crying while I was riding down the road and then you called me the next day. I was like, oh, of course I called you the day after you listened to some sermon randomly and wept in your car. Of course that happened. I was at the Spokane airport picking up my wife and kids from the airport at midnight. My neighbor, like my literal next door neighbor was there too. I don't even talk to him in my neighborhood. Real talk. Brother is at the airport <laughs> in Spokane. I walk by and he goes, dude, we should have carpooled. And I was like, oh no, you? In the airport? God, really? Listen, if, if we have eyes to see it, I, I, I promise you, God is putting the ball on the tee over and over and over and over and over. Now, I recently uh, read this amazing book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And it's a story of a guy who uh, was coming out of Islam and he just tells a story about how he was being pursued by two missionaries, God the missionary and his friend the missionary. And there came a point in his life where uh, he was praying during Ramadan and of course, Jesus started showing up in his dreams or showing up in visions and simultaneously had a friend getting closer and closer to him. So he had someone to talk about with that. But listen, in the places where it is hardest to see missionary work happen, God himself is going before us doing the work. And if you know any people with a background in Islam, a lot of those people came out of that because Jesus met them in their dreams. And he went before and he did some things. So you go, man, how, how do I get involved in this? So listen, our posture in the world is looking for moments where we can join God in something he is already doing. He's already doing it. So, so Josh, I'm just, I'm just a mom. How does this work for me? Be careful going to the park because who knows who's going to show up at the park. God might be doing 10,000 things in their life. Or Josh, I just work in this job. Yeah, and, and you probably have a coworker who's two questions away from seeing a, a gospel conversation right there. Josh, I'm just a student. Yeah, who you sit next to in math class might have been ordained before the world began. Who knows? Like Josh, I'm a professor. Yeah, that one student that keeps coming in and like crying all the time, they might like need Jesus. Who knows? Like it's everywhere. It is all around. We don't see it because we don't have a spirituality looking for it. But when you pray and when you worship and you read the word differently and when you get his heart and you see what he's doing, you go, dude, I want in on this. I want in on this. And what it looks like for me is, uh, what's been most significant for me is when I see this, this type of stuff as, as, as not a sermon of, that, that guilts you into doing something, but a sermon that shows you the glory of doing something. And so, so often I'm like, feel guilty. I'm like, oh God, I feel guilty. And when I go talk to him, God's like, hey man, you want to play? I'm doing a lot. You can join in anything. Like I'll send your neighbor to the airport if that's what it takes. Like I'm doing a lot. And I'm like, I want in on it. He's like, come play. And it's fun. And so listen, uh, I, I submit to you, this is what you were created for. And I submit to you, when you see the resurrected Christ who has been crucified in your place and he shows you the nails in his hand and, and the scar in his side and he says, the father sent me, I'm sending you. That's not a moment of guilt. That's a moment of glory. And he says, come on, let's be a part of what I'm doing in the world. And you go, Josh, where do I start? You start by praying this way and thinking this way. And it, it, it'll change you and it'll affect you and it'll come after you in ways you never saw possible. But listen, the only way you and I are going to sustain a life of mission is truly believing that he is a missionary God who sent forth a missionary son, who's empowered us with the missionary spirit with the mission that the gates of hell cannot overcome. The only way you will be sustained in this life is believing that God himself gave you this call. 
And then you'll think, man, every time I'm blessed, that's to be a blessing. Everything I have is to be leveraged for his glory. And you'll start to think that way. Just to give you a scope of this right now, there's over 100 million people in North America who don't worship God and God deserves their worship. And across the world, there's 3,000 animistic tribes in hard to reach places and they're worshiping gods and other spirits that are not worthy of their worship. Right now, there are 300 million Buddhists in the world and Buddha is not worthy of their worship. There are 950 million Hindus worshiping thousands of God and none of those gods are worthy of their worship. There's 1 billion people under communist rule growing up under atheist uh, regulations in China and North Korea and Cuba. And they're, they're being told something that's not true because there is a God and he is worthy of their worship. And there are 1.5 billion Muslims who are praying to a God who's not real. And there is a one true God who is worthy of their worship and deserves their glory. And people who believe God is worthy of all people's worship will give their lives away, making him known in all nations. If you start to believe that God is worthy of all people's worship, then you will give your life away to make sure that happens. And so that's what we invite you into, to join us as a missionary people. Join us in joining in what God is already doing. And I submit to you, it'll be the most fun you've ever had. Is it going to be easy? No. Everyone I listed earlier from the New Testament probably died for the sake of the gospel. And I I bet you it was their joy because they believed in something and I'm submitting to us. It's our turn and God's asked us to do this. So resonate church. Let's be a missionary people for the sake of his name being seen and known in all the nations. And I want to pray that we might be those kind of people. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you pursued us when we were actively running away from you. And God, I thank you so much that that you love us enough to invite you, to invite us to join you in the mission. And God, I pray for us right now that, that in this moment we would ask ourselves the question. We'd honestly ask ourselves the question, are we being missionary people? And God, we'd be willing to answer that with honesty. And we'd be willing to engage you with honesty. And Lord, as we continue in worship now, I pray that you would move in us. And you would affect us and you would change us, God. And you would let us see your missionary heart. So listen, right where you are, the band's going to start singing in just a moment. Maybe, maybe tonight you don't feel pressure to jump right up and sing. Maybe tonight as the band starts to sing, you, you sit right where you are and you ask yourself, God, would you give me your heart? God, would you please move into my space right now and, and give me your posture towards this world? Give me your thoughts towards this world. Give me your passion for this world. As the band continues to sing and you find yourself in a place where you're like, man, Lord, I want to be a part of this. 
And you can stand up and you can worship God knowing that he is gloriously good. And he has also called you to go into the world and join him in telling people about his glorious goodness. So Father, speak to us. I pray that your voice is loud in this time and you speak to us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.